Section forty of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume Four, by James Boswell, Section Forty. In his social intercourse, she thus describes him ever musing till he was called out to converse and conversing till the fatigue of his friends or the promptitude of his own temper to take offence consigned him back again to silent meditation yet in the same book she tells us he was however seldom inclined to be silent when any moral or literary question was started and it was on such occasions that like the sage in rasselas he spoke and attention watched his lips he reasoned and conviction closed his periods his conversation indeed was so far from ever fatiguing his friends that they regretted when it was interrupted or ceased and could exclaim in milton's language with thee conversing i forget all time I certainly then do not claim too much in behalf of my illustrious friend in saying that, however smart and entertaining Mrs. Thrale's anecdotes are, they must not be held as good evidence against him, for wherever an instance of harshness and severity is told, I beg leave to doubt its perfect authenticity. For though there may have been some foundation for it, yet like that of his reproof to the very celebrated lady it may be so exhibited in the narration as to be very unlike the real fact the evident tendency of the following anecdote is to represent dr johnson as extremely deficient in affection tenderness or even common civility when one day i lamented the loss of a first cousin killed in america prithee my dear said he have done with canting how would the world be the worse for it i may ask if all your relations were at once spitted like larks and roasted for presto's supper presto was the dog that lay under the table while we talked Footnote johnson one day on seeing an old terrier lie asleep by the fireside at streatham said presto you are if possible a more lazy dog than i am i suspect this too of exaggeration and distortion i allow that he made her an angry speech but let the circumstances fairly appear as told by mr baretti who was present Mrs. Thrale, while supping very heartily upon larks, laid down her knife and fork and abruptly exclaimed, Oh, my dear Mr. Johnson, do you know what has happened? The last letters from abroad have brought us an account that our poor cousin's head was taken off by a cannonball. Johnson, who was shocked both at the fact and her light, unfeeling manner of mentioning it, replied, madam it would give you 
very little concern if all your relations were spitted like those larks and dressed for presto supper footnote upon mentioning this to my friend mr wilkes he with his usual readiness pleasantly matched it with the following sentimental anecdote he was invited by a young man of fashion at paris to sup with him and a lady who had been for some time his mistress but with whom he was going to part he said to mr wilkes that he really felt very much for her she was in such distress and that he meant to make her a present of two hundred louis d'or mr wilkes observed the behaviour of mademoiselle who sighed indeed very piteously and assumed every pathetic air of grief but ate no less than three french pigeons which are as large as english partridges besides other things mr wilkes whispered the gentleman we often say in england excessive sorrow is exceeding dry but i never heard excessive sorrow is exceeding hungry perhaps one hundred will do the gentleman took the hint boswell End of footnote. it is with concern that i find myself obliged to animadvert on the inaccuracies of mrs piozzi's anecdotes and perhaps i may be thought to have dwelt too long upon her little collection but as from johnson's long residence under mr thrale's roof and his intimacy with her the account which she has given of him may have made an unfavourable and unjust impression my duty as a faithful biographer has obliged me reluctantly to perform this unpleasing task having left the pious negotiation as i called it in the best hands i shall here insert what relates to it johnson wrote to sir joshua reynolds on july the sixth as follows i am going i hope in a few days to try the air of derbyshire but i hope to see you before i go let me however mention to you what i have much at heart if the chancellor should continue his attention to mr boswell's request and confer with you on the means of relieving my languid state i am very desirous to avoid the appearance of asking money upon false pretences i desire you to represent to his lordship what as soon as it is suggested he will perceive to be reasonable that if i grow much worse i shall be afraid to leave my physicians to suffer the inconveniences of travel and pine in the solitude of a foreign country that if i grow much better of which indeed there is now little appearance i shall not wish to leave my friends and my domestic comforts for i do not travel for pleasure or curiosity yet if i should recover curiosity would revive in my present state i am desirous to make a struggle for a little longer life and hope to obtain some help from a softer climate do for me what you can he wrote to me july the twenty sixth 
i wish your affairs could have permitted a longer and continued exertion of your zeal and kindness they that have your kindness may want your ardour in the meantime i am very feeble and very dejected by a letter from sir joshua reynolds i was informed that the lord chancellor had called on him and acquainted him that the application had not been successful but that his lordship after speaking highly in praise of johnson as a man who was an honour to his country desired sir joshua to let him know that on granting a mortgage of his pension he should draw on his lordship to the amount of five or six hundred pounds and that his lordship explained the meaning of the mortgage to be that he wished the business to be conducted in such a manner that dr johnson should appear to be under the least possible obligation sir joshua mentioned that he had by the same post communicated all this to dr johnson how johnson was affected upon the occasion will appear from what he wrote to sir joshua reynolds ashbourne september the ninth many words i hope are not necessary between you and me to convince you what gratitude is excited in my heart by the chancellor's liberality and your kind offices i have enclosed a letter to the chancellor which when you have read it you will be pleased to seal with a head or any other general seal and convey it to him had i sent it directly to him i should have seemed to overlook the favour of your intervention to the lord high chancellor footnote sir joshua reynolds on account of the excellence both of the sentiment and expression of this letter took a copy of it which he showed to some of his friends one of whom who admired it being allowed to peruse it leisurely at home a copy was made and found its way into the newspapers and magazines it was transcribed with some inaccuracies i printed from the original draft in johnson's own handwriting boswell hawkins writes johnson upon being told that it was in print exclaimed in my hearing i am betrayed but soon after forgot as he was ever ready to do all real or supposed injuries the error that made the publication possible End of footnote. my lord after a long and not inattentive observation of mankind the generosity of your lordship's offer raises in me not less wonder than gratitude footnote. cooper wrote of thurlow i know well the chancellor's benevolence of heart and how much he is misunderstood by the world when he was young he would do the kindest things and at an expense to himself which at that time he could ill afford and he would do them too in the most secret manner yet thurlow did not keep his promise made to cooper when they were fellow clerks in an attorney's office thurlow i am nobody and shall always be nobody and you will be chancellor you shall provide for me when you are he smiled and replied i surely will when cooper sent him the first volume of his poems 
he thought it not worth his while the poet writes to return me any answer or to take the least notice of my present mr afterwards sir w jones in two letters to burke speaks of thurlow as the greek therion beast i heard last night with surprise and affliction he wrote on february the fifteenth seventeen eighty three that the greek therion was to continue in office now i can assure you from my own positive knowledge and i know him well that although he hates our species in general yet his particular hatred is directed against none more virulently than against lord north and the friends of the late excellent marquis End of footnote. readers note johnson bounty so liberally bestowed i should gladly receive if my condition made it necessary for to such a mind who would not be proud to own his obligations but it has pleased god to restore me to so great a measure of health that if i should now appropriate so much of a fortune destined to do good i could not escape from myself the charge of advancing a false claim my journey to the continent though i once thought it necessary was never much encouraged by my physicians and i was very desirous that your lordship should be told of it by sir joshua reynolds as an event very uncertain for if i grew much better i should not be willing if much worse not able to migrate your lordship was first solicited without my knowledge but when i was told that you were pleased to honour me with your patronage i did not expect to hear of a refusal yet as i have had no long time to brood hope and have not rioted in imaginary opulence this cold reception has been scarce a disappointment and from your lordship's kindness i have received a benefit which only men like you are able to bestow i shall now live mihi cario with a higher opinion of my own merit i am my lord your lordship's most obliged most grateful and most humble servant samuel johnson september seventeen eighty four upon this unexpected failure i abstain from presuming to make any remarks or to offer any conjectures Footnote scarcely had pitt attained possession of unbounded power when an aged writer of the highest eminence who had made very little by his writings and who was sinking into the grave under a load of infirmities and sorrows wanted five or six hundred pounds to enable him during the winter or two which might still remain to him to draw his breath more easily in the soft climate of italy not a farthing was to be obtained and before christmas the author of the english dictionary and of the lives of the poets had gasped his last in the river fog and coal smoke of fleet street just before macaulay with monstrous exaggeration says that gibbon forced by poverty to leave his country completed his immortal work on the shores of lake Leman. this poverty of gibbon would have been splendour to johnson 
Mr. Brett's royal calendar for 1795 shows that there were twelve lords of the king's bedchamber receiving each one thousand pounds a year, and fourteen grooms of the bedchamber receiving each five hundred pounds a year. As Burns was made a gauger, so Johnson might have been made a lord or at least a groom of the bedchamber. It is not certain that Pitt heard of the application for an increased pension. Mr. Croker quotes from Thurlow's letter to Reynolds of November the 18th, 1784, It was impossible for me to take the king's pleasure on the suggestion I presumed to move. I am an untoward solicitor. Whether he consulted Pitt cannot be known. Mr. Croker notices a curious obliteration in this letter the Chancellor had written. It would have suited the purpose better if nobody had heard of it except Dr. Johnson, you, and J. Boswell. Boswell has been erased, artfully too, says Mr. Croker, so that the sentence appears to run, except Dr. Johnson, you, and I. Mr. Croker, with his usual suspiciousness, suspects an uncandid trick but it is very likely that Thurlow himself made the obliteration regardless of grammar. He might easily have thought that it would have been better still had Boswell not been in the secret. End of footnote. Having, after repeated reasonings, brought Dr. Johnson to agree to my removing to London, and even to furnish me with arguments in favour of what he had opposed, I wrote to him requesting he would write them for me. He was so good as to comply, and I shall extract that part of his letter to me of June the 11th as a proof how well he could exhibit a cautious yet encouraging view of it. I remember and entreat you to remember that virtus est visum fugere. The first approach to riches is security from poverty. The condition on which you have my consent to settle in London is that your expense never exceeds your annual income. Fixing this basis of security, you cannot be hurt, and you may be very much advanced. The loss of your Scottish business, which is all that you can lose, is not to be reckoned as any equivalent to the hopes and possibilities that open here upon you. If you succeed, the question of prudence is at an end. Everybody will think that done right, which ends happily. And though your expectations, of which I would not advise you to talk too much, should not be totally answered, you can hardly fail to get friends who will do for you all that your present situation allows you to hope. And if, after a few years, you should return to Scotland, you will return with a mind supplied by various conversation and many opportunities of inquiry, with much knowledge and materials for reflection and instruction. Let us now contemplate Johnson thirty years after the death of his wife, still retaining for her all the tenderness of affection. To the Reverend Mr. Bagshaw at Bromley, sir. Perhaps you may remember that in the year 1753 you committed to the ground my dear wife. 
i now entreat your permission to lay a stone upon her and have sent the inscription that if you find it proper you may signify your allowance you will do me a great favour by showing the place where she lies that the stone may protect her remains mr ryland will wait on you for the inscription and procure it to be engraved you will easily believe that i shrink from this mournful office when it is done if i have strength remaining i will visit bromley once again and pay you part of the respect to which you have a right from reverend sir your most humble servant samuel johnson july the twelfth seventeen eighty four on the same day he wrote to mr langton i cannot but think that in my languid and anxious state i have some reason to complain that i receive from you neither inquiry nor consolation you know how much i value your friendship and with what confidence i expect your kindness if i wanted any act of tenderness that you could perform at least if you do not know it i think your ignorance is your own fault yet how long is it that i have lived almost in your neighbourhood without the least notice i do not however consider this neglect as particularly shown to me i hear two of your most valuable friends make the same complaint but why are all thus overlooked you are not oppressed by sickness you are not distracted by business if you are sick you are sick of leisure and allow yourself to be told that no disease is more to be dreaded or avoided rather to do nothing than to do good is the lowest state of a degraded mind boileau says to his pupil que les vers ne soient pas votre éternel emploi cultivez pour amis that voluntary debility which modern language is content to term indolence will if it is not counteracted by resolution render in time the strongest faculties lifeless and turn the flame to the smoke of virtue i do not expect nor desire to see you because i am much pleased to find your mother stays so long with you and i should think you neither elegant nor grateful if you did not study her gratification you will pay my respects to both the ladies and to all the young people i am going northward for a while to try what help the country can give me but if you will write the letter will come after me next day he set out on a jaunt to staffordshire and derbyshire flattering himself that he might be in some degree relieved during his absence from london he kept up a correspondence with several of his friends from which i shall select what appears to me proper for publication without attending nicely to chronological order to dr brocklesby he writes ashbourne july the twentieth the kind attention which you have so long shown to my health and happiness makes it as much a debt of gratitude as a call of interest to give you an account of what befalls me when accident recovers me from your immediate 
care. The journey of the first day was performed with very little sense of fatigue. The second day brought me to Lichfield without much lassitude, but I am afraid that I could not have borne such violent agitation for many days together. Tell Dr. Heberden that in the coach I read Ciceronianus, which I concluded as I entered Lichfield. My affection and understanding went along with Erasmus, except that once or twice he somewhat unskilfully entangled Cicero's civil or moral with his rhetorical character. I stayed five days at Lichfield, but being unable to walk, had no great pleasure, and yesterday, the 19th, I came hither, where I am to try what air and attention can perform. Of any improvement in my health, I cannot yet please myself with the perception. The asthma has no abatement. Opiates stop the fit, so as that I can sit and sometimes lie easy, but they do not now procure me the power of motion, and I am afraid that my general strength of body does not increase. The weather, indeed, is not benign, but how low is he sunk, whose strength depends upon the weather. I am now looking into Floyer, who lived with his asthma to almost his ninetieth year. His book, by want of order, is obscure, and his asthma, I think, not of the same kind with mine. Something, however, I may perhaps learn. My appetite still continues keen enough, and what I consider as a symptom of radical health, I have a voracious delight in raw summer fruit, of which I was less eager a few years ago. Footnote. I have heard Dr. Johnson protest that he never had quite as much as he wished of wall fruit except once in his life. End of footnote. You will be pleased to communicate this account to Dr. Heberden, and if anything is to be done, let me have your joint opinion. Now, abite cure, let me inquire after the club. July the 31st. Not recollecting that Dr. Heberden might be at Windsor, I thought your letter long in coming, but you know the letter which i so much desired tells me that i have lost one of my best and tenderest friends my comfort is that he appeared to live like a man that had always before his eyes the fragility of our present existence and was therefore i hope not unprepared to meet his judge your attention dear sir and that of dr heberden to my health is extremely kind I am loath to think that I grow worse, and cannot fairly prove even to my own partiality that I grow much better. August the 5th. I return you thanks, dear sir, for your unwearied attention, both medicinal and friendly, and hope to prove the effect of your care by living to acknowledge it. August the 12th. Pray be so kind as to have me in your thoughts, and mention my case to others as you have opportunity. I seem to myself neither to gain nor lose strength. 
I have lately tried milk, but have yet found no advantage, and am afraid of it merely as a liquid. My appetite is still good, which I know is dear Dr. Hebberden's criterion of the this vitae. As we cannot now see each other, do not omit to write, for you cannot think with what warmth of expectation I reckon the hours of a post-day. August 14th I have hitherto sent you only melancholy letters. You will be glad to hear some better account. Yesterday the asthma remitted, perceptibly remitted, and I moved with more ease than I have enjoyed for many weeks. May God continue his mercy. This account I would not delay, because I am not a lover of complaints or complainers, and yet I have, since we parted, uttered nothing till now but terror and sorrow. Write to me, dear sir. August the 16th. Better, I hope, and better. My respiration gets more and more ease and liberty. I went to church yesterday, after a very liberal dinner, without any inconvenience. It is indeed no long walk, but I never walked it without difficulty since I came before. The intention was only to overpower the seeming this inertiae of the pectoral and pulmonary muscles. I am favoured with a degree of ease that very much delights me, and do not despair of another race upon the stairs of the academy. Footnote. His letter to Dr. Heberden shows that he had gone with Dr. Brocklesby to the last academy dinner when, as he boasted, he went up all the stairs to the pictures without stopping to rest or to breathe. End of footnote. If I were, however, of a humour to see or to show the state of my body on the dark side, I might say, Quid te exempta juvat spinis de pluribus una? The nights are still sleepless, and the water rises, though it does not rise very fast. Let us, however, rejoice in all the good that we have. The remission of one disease will enable nature to combat the rest. The squills I have not neglected, for I have taken more than a hundred drops a day, and one day took two hundred and fifty, which, according to the popular equivalence of a drop to a grain, is more than half an ounce. I thank you, dear sir, for your attention in ordering the medicines. Your attention to me has never failed. If the virtue of the medicines could be enforced by the benevolence of the prescriber, how soon should I be well? End of section 14